So thank you very much for those of you that prayed for us while we were away. Um, we were away, myself and Lee, in Southeast Asia for the last couple of weekends. We've been away for 12 days. Um, we started a week last Friday. We flew into the Kingdom of Brunei. I'd never been to that place before. If you don't know where it is, it's on the island of Borneo. There's about 340,000 people live in that country. It's one of the richest countries in the world. It's uh, led by the Sultan of Brunei. You might have heard of him. It is an Islamic country, totally an Islamic country. And so we were on the plane, on the Royal Brunei International plane, and it starts off with Muslim prayers on the tannoy, which I'd never had that experience before. A fella kneeling down beside us, etc. All of that kind of thing. Flew into the country. Um, a long, very long way, uh, don't sleep on planes, I don't, so got there in the morning eventually and they picked us up and took us straight to our first meeting, which was nice and I'm like, Ugh. meeting lots of people, then we went back to the hotel, quickly changed, then went out to a leadership meeting where I spoke to about 40 leaders, so by that time it had been 34 hours since I'd slept, so I'm not quite sure what I said to those leaders, but uh, it could have been anything to be honest, but we had a, a weekend in Brunei and it was amazing, there are only six churches in in the country officially three Anglicans and three Catholics we spent our time with the Anglican churches brilliant brilliant people fantastic people really love God and we were able to speak to leaders to young people and to two English congregations and to a Tamil congregation as well which was fantastic and uh, we just had an awesome time really and then we had a couple of sightseeing days which was great as well uh, got to go into a rainforest which was a lifelong ambition of mine to go down a river on a boat and go into the rainforest which was awesome and then we flew to Singapore and then spent the rest of the time in Singapore and in Malaysia speaking to different churches all Singaporean churches and again had a fantastic time so thank you for your prayers uh, what was in, impacting me this time was the strategic nature of where these Christians are because in Brunei there are only six churches if any of the church shuts down the government will not allow a new church to be built so those churches have to stay open for the gospel to stay there, really. Now, there are some underground house churches, but it's very small. The other thing is that there's a thing called IRK, which is Islamic Religious Knowledge, which is compulsory in all of the state schools. They're trying to make that compulsory in all of the faith schools as well. And there are a lot of faith schools in Brunei. The, the Anglican Church and the Catholic Church all have very big schools, from kindergarten right up to junior high, our sixth form college. So really pray for them, will you? And It was a very big issue while we were there they were really praying uh, and they talked to us about it as well and I said that we would as a church pray for them so please pray for them it's just a small country with a small group of Christians but could make a massive difference and the church in Singapore is very strong but those Christians there they reach that whole part of Southeast Asia very ungodly part of the world so they're reaching into Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos, Myanmar which used to be Burma, uh, um, Thailand, uh, Malaysia, all these places. They're really strategic places spiritually so I really encourage you to kind of pray and we, we're excited about the relationship that God is kind of developing between us and the church out there. Okay so we're going to look at a, a new series and I'm very excited about this series. I know I say that a lot at the moment but I am really excited about this series and if we can put the slide up that'd be great. Four pillars, uh, not pillows, so you're not going to sleep, pillars. We, as a church, this church is part of the Elim Pentecostal Church. Have, any, have you ever heard of that? <laughs> okay, that's good. All right. A few of them had done, you're right. Elim Pentecostal Church. Uh, Elim Pentecostal Church is a group of churches that's approaching our centenary. 
Okay, in a couple of years' time, Elim as a denomination of churches will have been going 100 years. At the start of the 20th century, in fact in 1904, the Azusa Street Revival in California, there was an outpouring of the Holy Spirit and it started the phenomenon called Pentecostal churches, all right, or Pentecostal experience, if you like. Now, that's not, it's not new because it started in Acts chapter 2, all right, but let me just flag that up. But over the last hundred or so years, the Pentecostal churches have changed the face of Christianity across the world. The fastest growing group of churches in the world is the Pentecostal churches. And when Elim started nearly a hundred years ago, it started with a kind of revelation of the gospel as the four square gospel. Has anyone heard that phrase, four square? Some of you will, but a lot of you won't. The idea is that the gospel is kind of made up of these four understandings of Jesus as our saviour, our healer, our baptiser and our soon coming king. And I thought it would be great to go back to that and to, and to discover again what those guys in the 1920s and the 1930s in England and across the world, what they really discovered about the gospel of Christ. Because to them, these were the four pillars that they built something incredible on. And it wasn't just that these, these were theological understandings that Jesus is a saviour. No, it wasn't that. This was more than a theology. This was an experience. Jesus is the person who saves lives and continues to save lives. He's not just a healer. He healed them. And he was healing through them other people. He's not just a baptizer. He baptized them in the Spirit. And he baptizes others in the Spirit. And of course, he's the coming king. And we haven't got to that one yet. <laughs> okay? But the urgency of the fact that Jesus is the coming king is one of the things that propelled them to be evangelistic and to change the face of our nation. And if you go back in the history books in the 1930s and the 40s, there were mass events all across England. And churches were born and birthed in that movement of God's Holy Spirit. And so I thought we'd go back to that, but not stay stuck in the past. We'd look at what do these things really mean for us? And what are these pillars that we build our faith on? So today we're going to look at Jesus as the Saviour. And before you all switch off and say, oh, I understand all that, you don't. All right? Or you might do, but I have, have not. And I have really got excited about understanding again and looking afresh at what it means that Jesus is my Saviour. So what is salvation? What do we mean by salvation? The dictionary defines salvation as the preservation or deliverance from destruction, difficulty or evil. But what does the Bible definition say? And I found a Bible definition. This is so, you'll go, oh, flipping it when you listen to this. This is such a Bible college definition, all right? The process of being made safe from misused and dysfunctional humanity and thereby restored to the functionality God intended by allowing the dynamic of the ontological person and work of the Saviour Jesus Christ to express his divine character in man to the glory of God. Did you get that down? Did you get that? And it's like when you see a definition like that and you think, what is that about? You, you kind of lose the sense of amazement, don't you? Do you know what I mean? When you have to understand that. In fact, I think in our modern world, we are so politically correct and we are so used to trying to be so sophisticated that we miss the awe and the wonder of what salvation is all about. How many of you know the parable of the lost sheep? I mean, there was a sheep, 99, and the one gets lost, and the shepherd goes and gets him, and he saves him, and he brings him back, and there's a party. But in our modern world, we can lose the awe and wonder of that. Here is a politically correct version of the lost sheep. Can I read it to you? It's called the geographically dislocated sheep. He's not lost anymore. He's geographically dislocated. 
All right, are you ready for this? Once several morally different persons, not sinners, gathered around Jesus to hear his teaching. Some were Palestinian revenue collectors. <laughs> Others were underachievers and non-goal-oriented members of society. When the Pharisees and scribes, members of the cultural elite, saw these persons sharing Jesus' space, they said condescendingly, this Jesus person welcomes ethically disoriented persons and even eats non-organic foods with them. Jesus, hearing their classist grumbles, told them this parable. Once there was a geographically disadvantaged sheep who wandered away from the herd in search of fresh grass. The shepherd, who did not exploit these non-humane animals, was the survivor of attention deficit disorder and took several hours to notice that one of the sheep, under his care, had become dislocated. The shepherd was faced with a moral dilemma. Should he leave the 99 sheep and go find the one dislocated sheep? If he did, the 99 would have no protection from predators of non-humane animals. But this shepherd was an animal rights activist who was committed to equal justice for all non-humane animals. So he went in search of the geographically dislocated sheep. When he found the sheep, he was exceedingly pleased. His self-esteem was greatly enhanced. He placed the sheep on his shoulders. He felt it would be too strenuous for the sheep to walk back on its own. Carried it back and reunited it with the herd. There was much happy bleating from the sheep that day. Then the shepherd went home, called all his neighbours together and announced, Rejoice with me, for I have found my geographically dislocated sheep. One of his neighbours, who was emotionally different, said in a negative tone of voice, You mean you left 99 sheep unprotected to find one single lost sheep? That's right, replied the shepherd a little defensively. Well, I think that's a stupid choice, said the man. This person was immediately surrounded by the shepherd's neighbours who were shocked at the negative and critical tone of voice he used. They immediately began his re-education in how to be respectful of the feelings of other people. After Jesus finished his story, the Pharisees and scribes said, so what are you getting at? Jesus said, here's the point. There is more joy in heaven over one morally different person who becomes re-educated than over 99 self-righteous persons who don't think they need re-education. Pharisees and scribes said to each other, this Jesus fellow is the victim of non-linear thought processes. He is spiritually dysfunctional. And I thought when I read that, you know, that's kind of like the sophistication that we as our culture try and put on these stories and on salvation, don't we? And when these guys in their, in their very working class upbringing, which is what the Elim was birthed in, very working class upbringing, often coal miners and, and laborers and, and etc., when they discovered that Jesus was a saviour that saved lost people like them, it changed their world, changed their life. And they gave themselves passionately to evangelising this nation and beyond. And I've made some observations actually about salvation. I want to make some to you this morning. Number one. The more you have, own or possess, the less likely you are to know you need a saviour. You see, I made an observation from travelling to different parts of the world, that in other parts of the world where they don't own, have or possess as much as us, they know they need a saviour. But we have so much stuff that we think, because we've got all this stuff, we don't need saving from anyone. Secondly, even when you know you need a saviour, you don't necessarily ask for help. Lord Kenneth Clark was a man who was known for his television series called Civilization. It says of him he lived and died without faith in Christ. 
He admitted in his autobiography that while visiting a beautiful church, he had what he believed to be an overwhelming religious experience. My whole being, he wrote, was irradiated by the kind of heavenly joy far more intense than anything I'd known before. But he called it a gloom of grace. It's an interesting phrase. But this gloom of grace, as he described it, created a problem. See, if he allowed himself to be influenced by it, he knew he would have to change. His family might think he'd lost his mind. And maybe that intense joy would prove to be an illusion. So this is what he concluded. I was too deeply embedded in the world to change course. So there's a man who has a spiritual experience, who knows that there's a God, who knows that he needs saving, but he's too embedded in the world to make a change. Isn't that interesting? And you know, I want to suggest to you that it's not just people who don't know Christ who are like this, but this is relevant to all of us. Because the process of salvation, as I'm going to show to you in a minute, is not a one-off experience. And we're going to look at that. And when we get too embedded in the world, and when we get too wrapped up in what we own or possess, that's when the work of the Saviour is nullified in our lives. See, the third observation I've made about salvation is this. Understanding God's view of salvation will require unlearning as well as learning. Let's do some unlearning this morning. Is that right? Let's look firstly at the Jewish misunderstanding of salvation. You see, the Jewish misunderstanding is the Hebrew word for salvation means rescue. In the Jewish psyche, rescue meant to be rescued from sickness, trouble, distress, fear, but especially enemies who are oppressing you. So let me read some some scriptures. Exodus 15 verse 2. The Lord is my strength and song. He has become my salvation. That's in the time of Moses. 2 Samuel 22, verse 3. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation. That's in the time of David. Luke 1, 69. He raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Salvation from our enemies. That's in the time of Jesus. Now I want you to know something. In each of those occasions, when the word salvation is used, it's not used in connection with salvation from our sins so that we go to heaven when we die. It's used in connection with salvation from real people who were oppressing the people of God in that time. So in the time of Moses, it was in reference to the Egyptians. It was the song that Miriam sang when they came out, of, um, out, out, out through the Red Sea. In David, it was looking back at the time when Saul and his other enemies were trying to kill him. And God rescued him. And of course, in Luke chapter 1, the Jewish people were thinking that the Messiah, when he would come, would deliver them from the Roman oppression. So salvation in the Jewish psyche is all about politics in the here and now. It's all about being rescued from these people who are oppressing us. But the Gentile misunderstanding, and Gentile just means everyone else who's not a Jew, and this is also the modern misunderstanding. Our misunderstanding is that salvation is only about being saved or rescued from our personal sins so we go to heaven when we die and not the other place. And if you look at those two misunderstandings, they are both wrong when it comes to salvation. Now there's elements of rightness about it, of course, Salvation does include salvation from our personal sins, so we go to heaven when we die. That's fine. But it's much, much bigger and broader than that. And salvation is not just about the physical being, you know, your circumstances being changed. That's the Jewish thing. God, will you come and rescue us from these circumstances that we don't like? 
We were oppressed by the Egyptians. Then we were oppressed by the Babylonians. Now we're oppressed by the Romans. Will you come down and save us from our circumstances? Salvation is much, much, much bigger than that. Let me read this to you. A writer puts it this way better than I ever could. And he's writing into this Jewish understanding. Salvation doesn't mean slitting Roman throats and getting power. Salvation means being liberated from the cycle of violence, liberated from the need to be in power. God wants to save you from your present life of hatred and fear and instead reconnect you with God's original plan for the descendants of Abraham. Even as an oppressed people, you can be a blessing. Instead of slitting a Roman soldier's throat, carry his pack for him. Instead of cursing him, pray for him. I am here to save you from the whole system of insult and revenge, not by giving you political victory and not by telling you to give up on this life and instead focus on salvation from hell after this life, but by giving you permission, listen to this, to start your participation in God's mission right now, right where you are, even as an oppressed people. The opportunity to start living in this new and better way is available to you right now. The kingdom of God is at hand. I want to suggest something to you, and you will only get this by revelation. I'll say it and some of you will say, oh yeah, 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 whatever. But I'll tell you, when I understood this, if you get this by the Spirit of God, it will change your spiritual life. Salvation is being rescued from a life of disconnection with God. That's what salvation is. It's saving you from being separated from the real, permanent, right now, life of God in your life. Now that, of course, personal sin is what separates you, disconnects you. But there's loads of other things that disconnect us from the life of God. You know that, don't you? You see, this is so important because this is why, and I've said this so many times a few weeks, in the last few weeks, that when the rich young ruler comes to Jesus... And says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus doesn't say, pray the sinner's prayer. He doesn't say, put your hand up. He doesn't say, come to the front. He doesn't say, go on a journey course or a first steps course or anything else. He doesn't do any of that. He says, sell what you've got and give it to the poor. And he never says that to anyone else. So why does he say it to the rich young ruler? He says it because Jesus knows that that is what is disconnecting him from the life of God. He is so precious about what's precious to him He's not experiencing the life of God right now. You see, money and power and possessions aren't necessarily what disconnects other people from God, but they were for this man. And Jesus knew that. You see, and he kept all the commandments and he did all the right things, but he still didn't experience the life of God. And, and, and Jesus saying, I want to save you. I want to rescue you from a life of disconnection from me. But you're going to have to get rid of the thing that is stopping you experiencing my life. And that is power. That is money and possessions. When he, when he meets the woman at the well in John chapter 4, and they have that little talk. Do you remember that about water and stuff? Uh, and then he kind of, the real talk that he's, you know, what's, what's quenching your thirst is what they're talking about. But of course, what Jesus then starts to talk about is all the, the men that she's been with and the one that she's with now and all these different men. And then when he says at the end, go and sin no more, what he's talking about is in the context, don't go and give your life to all these men because that is what is disconnecting you from the life of God. You see, see, you're so in need of affection and real love and you think that it will come through sex with all these different men. 
You've got to sin no more. Don't do that anymore because you are disconnecting yourself from the life of God. And I have come to rescue you and to save you. That's amazing, isn't it? And the scribes and the Pharisees. You see, Jesus says to them, you search the scriptures because you think that by them you'd have life. And yet you refuse to come to me. So you know all the scriptures. You know all the law. But you are still disconnected from the life of God. And I have come to rescue people from disconnection from the life of God. You know, as I was thinking about this, and I, I guess being out where we were last, last week, we, there's a lot of Chinese people um, where we were, uh, people that have come from China two, three, four generations ago and settled in that part of the world. And it's an amazing culture, especially when they take you out for food. Can I just offer you a suggestion? All right, I ate the craziest food I've ever eaten in my life last week. I ate the eye of a fish and goodness knows what. Whenever you go out, to a, for, a, for a proper Chinese thing. If you're eating soup, don't ask them what's in it, all right? Because we were eating some soup and it was really nice until we asked what was in it. Just let me just give you that as a, for nothing. Don't ask what's in it and you'll be fine, all right? Because you do not want to know what was in the soup that we ate last week. But when I was out in that part of the world, it really made me think about the Chinese church as well. And a story I heard many years ago about a pastor who came over to England and who gave his story of when he was in the underground church in China at the height of the persecution and the oppression. And by the way, there still is persecution and oppression in China, okay? In case you think that's all gone, it hasn't. But, but, but this was at the height of it. And he was arrested and put in a prison. And the guards so mistreated him that what they did is they said, you know, we're going to give you the worst job in the whole prison. And they got him to clean out the cesspool which is this massive pit with all the human waste of all the men in the prison. And it was so smelly that the guards wouldn't go anywhere near it, so they just sent him down to it. But you know what his testimony says? That was the only place where he could go away from the guards. So that was the place where he sang his hymns to his Saviour. And he used to go and he used to sing that song about I walk with you in the garden or something. I walk with him and I talk with him and there I meet with him. And there's something about the sweet, there's even, there's even a phrase in it about the sweet fellowship or something with God in the garden. And it was in the cesspool. You see, to me, if I was there, I'd say, God rescue me, save me from this horrible circumstance. And yet God said, you know, I've come to rescue you from something worse than that. Disconnection from me. And so even in bad circumstances, we can be connected to the life of God. Do you know that? That's salvation. See, we think salvation is always taking us out of bad circumstances. But actually it's not. It's connecting us to the life of God in whatever circumstances we're in. And some of you right now, you're in circumstances that you didn't choose, that you don't want, that are uncomfortable, that smell, that stink, and you want rescue from them. God can do that. And God might do that, but God, more than that, wants to reconnect you with the life of God in the middle of your circumstances. So you can know the life of God wherever you are, because that's what salvation is really all about. Salvation is not about taking us from our uncomfortable circumstances and placing us into the circumstances we want. Salvation is about reconnecting us with the life of God right where we are. So what about you? What is disconnecting you from the life of God right now? What is it that you need rescuing from? In what way do you need salvation right now? Let's take a fresh look at salvation. How has this salvation and rescue come to us? I want to talk to you a little bit about something called the Romans Road. Not the Roman Road, the Romans Road. If you've got a Bible, if you go to the book of Romans, this is a concept that you can, you can basically track through the book of Romans the whole story of salvation. 
called the Romans Road. So we look at our problem in Romans 3, verse 23. You know it very well. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is the human condition, isn't it? You know, sin sees the world with no God in it. It's dominated with a selfish life. Ephesians 2, verse 3 from the message says, doing what we felt like doing when we felt like doing it. That's basically sin. God says love, but we choose to hate. God says forgive, but we want to get even. The ultimate disconnection from God is sin. And that's our problem. And it leads to a penalty in Exodus, Exodus, in Romans 6, verse 23. But the wages of sin are what? Death. And I once heard someone say, but the hours are good. The wages of sin are dead, but the hours are good. Well, actually, sin satisfies your thirst for a while, but so does salt water. But it isn't great for you long term. So the wages of sin are death. You see, that's the problem, is that we all have this sin disconnection from God. The penalty is death. But there is provision in Romans 5 verse 8. It says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Hallelujah. Isn't that great? While we were still in that condition of disconnection, of separation from God, Christ, the one who was sinless, perfect, God in human form, died for us. What a saviour. How marvellous. And we have a part to play in receiving what he's done for us in Romans 10 and verse 9. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus Lord and you believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You will be rescued. For it's with your heart that you believe and are justified. It's with your mouth that you confess. Then he goes on to say, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There's a sense in which to receive the salvation, we confess with our mouth, we believe in our heart and we trust God. That's how we receive that salvation. But I want you to know this morning, that's what we always talk to people about who don't know God, who aren't Christians. And then we think it's like, it's like they, they come in and it's like here's, like, here's a line here, okay? There's a little line here. Like this is the starting line. And so this, it, you're not in the, in the race now. And when you cross that line, that's it, you're in finish. Do you know what I mean? You're saved. But there's a whole race to run, isn't there? That's just the starting line. That's just the starting line. What does it mean to live a life of connection with God? What does it mean to be living in the salvation of God? What does it mean to be living in relationship with the Saviour? That whatever my circumstances, I'm in connection with the life of Christ. That's what we really want to get to this morning. Jesus must be the centre of who we are and the centre of what we preach and how we live by. Jesus' disciples said to Jesus, where else can we go? Only you have the words of eternal life. Look in Luke chapter 6 with me. Going to draw to a close by looking at this, and this is where we're going to apply it into our lives. And I, I believe that the Holy Spirit wants to really touch some lives today. It's really touched my life through this story here. A few weeks ago, I was I was away again. <laughs> I was away with some some other leaders. We were on retreat, and we were thinking about this story and about what this means for us as leaders. And I can't get it out of my out of my out of my head. Just the power of this, of this story, which I've seen before and never really seen it like this. Let me read it to you. Luke chapter 6 and verse 6. On another Sabbath, he went into the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was shriveled. Some versions say withered. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. But Jesus knew what they were thinking. <laughs> and said to the man with a shriveled hand, 
get up and stand in front of everyone. So we got up and stood there. Then Jesus said to them, I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? He looked round at them all and then said to the man, stretch out your hand. He did so and his hand was completely restored. But they were furious and began to discuss with one another what they might, what they might do to Jesus. Jesus' healing on the Sabbath, which, which under the law of the Pharisees, not under the law of God, under the law of the Pharisees was prohibited. Jesus did, it, did stuff on the Sabbath seven times. I mean, he just, do you know what I mean? He just like, yeah, whatever. You know, because Jesus has come, God has come, sent Jesus that we would have life. And life's more important than anything else. And so Jesus was healing again on the Sabbath. And the scribes and the Pharisees in this story were trying to preserve the life of God by the law. But they'd missed the point. As I've already said, Jesus has already said to them in John 5, you diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. You are disconnected from the life of God and your disconnection is your obsession with the law of God. So in trying to keep the law of God, you've disconnected yourself from the life of God. And when you do that, folks, what happens is that your heart begins to harden. And it's like you pour concrete over your heart. And I'm convinced that Christians, many of us, are just like this. We never say that we're like the Pharisees because they always get a bad press. But we can harden our heart. And it's like pouring concrete over our heart. And, and when Jesus comes into the house to bring life, we resist it because our heart is getting hard. And these people, look at these Pharisees. They watch, but they don't engage. They observe, but they don't invest. They look only with the goal of finding fault. Huh. Christians would never be like that, would we, in our churches? We'd never be people who watch but don't engage, who observe but don't invest, who only watch with the goal of finding fault. We'd never be like that, would we? Yes, we would. I've got like that. So have you. Many of you this morning, you may have been Christians for years and years and years. Have you got into a position where your heart has got hard? And you watch, but you're not going to engage. You observe, but you're not going to invest. You, watch, you look a little bit, but you're really looking to find fault. And you know what happens to, to people like this? They know the law. They even keep the law. They know the rules. know all that kind of stuff. They love God, but there's no life. There's no how wonderful, how marvellous, amazing. There's none of that. They also can get together. There's a group think around people like this. They can even sit together. Nothing will move them. And there's lots of ways that your heart can get hardened. Disappointment can do it. Hurt and betrayal can do it. Sin, bitterness, unforgiveness, pride, ego, ambition. It can happen to the very best of people. And when it does, folks, we need rescue. When it does, we need salvation. When it does, we need reconnection with the life of God. But then in the middle of this scene, Jesus picks out this man with the shriveled or the withered, as I like to use the word, withered hand. And notice it's the right hand. Sorry for all you lefties out there. But in the Bible, the right hand, it, it, in left hand, you're just not, not, okay? Sorry. Do you know what I mean? In God's sight, you are, but in Bible days, you're not. But the right hand was the symbol of authority, strength, fidelity, purpose, energy, creativity. That's, and it's his right hand that's with it. And notice something about this man. 
He never speaks in the whole interaction. Never speaks. This man is reactive and passive. You see, what's happened to this man is that life happens around him and to him, but not in him or through him. Can I say that again? Because it's really good. Life happens around him and to him, but it doesn't happen in him and through him. He's become reactive and passive. This is the condition of many believers. I believe some of us get hardened hearts, okay, and we looked at all that. But more than that, more than that, this is many of us today, this man symbolises our condition. We get reactive and passive. Could the withered hand be the reflection of a withered heart? Because that's why, why the Bible is so big on the heart. Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. See, if you don't guard your heart, there's no life. You see, you think, do you know what? If your circumstances improved, then you would feel more life. No, you wouldn't. No, you wouldn't. Because the Bible says that the heart is where the wellspring of life comes from. Why is it that two people who go, can go through the same kind of circumstances, one can flourish and grow and one can be crushed? It's nothing to do with personality. I always used to think it was personality. It's nothing to do with personality. It's all to do with our reconnection to the life of God. It's all to do with our resilience. It's all to do with us asking God to reconnect us to the life of God. And here's this man who's reactive and passive. And, and could his withered hand be a sign of a withered heart? And could this be a picture of some of us? Life happens around us and to us, but it's been a long time since life happened in us and through us. And we need reconnecting with the life of God. We need rescue, folks. We need salvation. We need salvation. So how's your heart right now? Is it hardened? Are you one of those people that watch but don't engage, observe but don't invest, look only with the goal of finding fault? Or actually saying, do you know what? I feel more like I'm not the withered man. I've got a withered heart. I just feel weary and dry and I desperately need reconnecting with the salvation and with the life of God. So what does Jesus get him to do? Totally, pastorally, the wrong thing, isn't it? Like, you know, just take him into the side room because he's in a bad situation. Do you know what I mean? He's a withered man here. He says, no, he gets him and he says, stand in the middle. And then, even worse, re- reach out your withered hand. But then everybody will see. Exactly. Because you spent far too much time being reactive and passive. You need to change the trajectory of where your life's going. Stand in the middle, reach out your right hand, and when he does that, he gets healed. But more than that, he gets saved. He gets rescued from a life of disconnection with God. Isn't that God amazing? Why don't we pray? Father, just put your books down for a moment, your Bibles, and don't switch off to the Holy Spirit. Not, not to me, to the Holy Spirit of God. I knew as I was preparing this this morning that there's life about this. There's life in this. If we'll respond, if we'll respond to God, there's life for some of us today. There's reconnection with the life of God. And you know, pride and um, ego and all those things, those are killers for disconnecting us from the life of God. But honesty and vulnerability, and where we say, do you know what, this is me, is like a, an open door for the life of God to come rushing 
into our heart. And so in a moment, I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond like this man with a withered hand. And I'm going to do it publicly. And I'm going to ask you to come and to stand at the front. And I'm going to ask you to reach out your right hand. And we're going to pray for you. The ministry team are going to pray for you. They're not going to ask you anything. They're just going to pray life into you. Reconnection with the life of God. And it may be that you say, actually, my heart is hardened. Not just with it, it's hardened. Well, that's all right as well. You just come and respond and let God touch you with his power. Because salvation is not just a one-off experience. Salvation is an ongoing reality of being rescued from a life of disconnection from the life of God. And yes, it includes our sins forgiven. And yes, it includes going to heaven when we die. But it includes much, 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 much more than that. It's about knowing that whatever our circumstances, we are loved by God and the life of God flows through our veins. So Father, we want to come to you this morning and we ask by the power of your Spirit that you would touch lives today. Touch our lives today, we pray. As we worship you, as we create just some space where you can reconnect your life with us. We ask you, Jesus, be the rescuer, be the saviour today in this place. Come and save some of us from this disconnection with the life, from the life of God. Lord, for some of us, we need to identify some things that are the barriers. Perhaps it is money. Perhaps it is relationships. Perhaps it is busyness. Perhaps it is ambition. Perhaps it is our job. Perhaps it is past hurts. I don't know what it is. But Lord, there's something that's stopping the life of God flowing through us and Lord we need to identify that and give it to you Lord that's part of what we want to do as well today so Holy Spirit just come please draw us to Jesus Jesus the Saviour the wonderful glorious matchless name of Jesus we pray in Jesus name Amen